Thank you very much, Terry, for your introduction that also preached the first paragraph of, uh, of my talk. Saving your time. Yeah, saving us all time. Fantastic. I'm still going to go for it anyway, with, uh, with your permission. Uh, it has been a really brilliant series looking at the book of Acts, looking at what happens when the Holy Spirit comes, and looking at these people with a sort of a spiritual DNA of uh, encounter with the risen Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, mission, care for the poor, and sharing life together. Mission, care for the poor, sharing life together, and these communities of believers, sort of vibrancy, just this breaking out of spiritual activity. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen miraculous healings. We've even started to see non-Jewish people come to faith. We've seen people get visited by angels. The Holy Spirit seems to have shown up in their gatherings a lot. Different races, different cultures, different backgrounds. It appears that anybody who encounters this uh, vibrant message of the risen Jesus is drawn in and starts to belong to these new communities. And last week we saw in Antioch where uh, this DNA, this uh, sense of spiritual momentum, of mission, of looking after one another, of caring for the poor, those things kind of came together in a really powerful way and uh, there was leadership raised up who really served that church and built a really strong church that seemed to bear fruit even greater than we'd seen before. And from Antioch, uh, these leaders in the church, these apostles in the life of the church get sent out again and again and again. We've also seen, and if you read through some of the passages we haven't preached on, that it isn't actually all plain sailing. They're having to try and work out what it means to be a community of faith. What does it mean to have people from different cultures gathering and becoming one community together? There's disagreement about who should go with them on one of the particular trips. There's opposition One of the reasons it spreads so fast is because they're actually escaping from persecution in certain places. So it isn't all plain sailing, but please understand this sort of like momentum, this snowballing effect. This good news is spreading like wildfire and anybody who encounters it seems to be joined in and this church is being birthed. And in the book of Acts, it now focuses specifically on Paul and uh, his missionary journeys. And uh, this is where we're going to pick it up now. Uh, We're going to pick it up in Acts 16, if you've got your Bibles with you. When it comes to uh, historical accounts in the Bible, when it comes to what we call the narrative, where they're writing down what happened, this gives us a real opportunity to immerse ourselves in the story and to imagine as though we were there. How would we have faced those situations as though we become characters in the story, both participants and observers of what happened in the story. So as we read this, don't read it like uh, um, sort of from the distance of hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, Read it as though we were reading something that was happening 
in our day. Imagine ourselves in these circumstances. So from verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God spoke, and they did. We're going to look at a map now. And uh, Macedonia uh, was and still is a regional area uh, of what's now Greece. Don't confuse it with the former uh, Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, although those two, the nation and the area in Greece, are still arguing over who owns that name. But we've seen the gospel spread from down in the corner in Jerusalem, up through uh, what is modern-day Syria, up through and into Turkey, and across modern-day Turkey. And as that's happened, we've seen people from other cultures. We've seen the Ethiopian come, and he's sort of, that's influencing Africa. Uh, we see it go across what's now known as the Middle East into Turkey. But now comes an absolutely game-changing moment in the history of the Christian faith. For the very first time that we know of, the apostles' feet are stepping foot in what is now Europe. You can see the momentum and the spreading out of this good news. But for the first time, for the first time, it is reaching what is now in these days called Europe. There's a modern twist here and just a reflection that this is a very, very similar journey to the journey that hundreds and thousands of Syrian refugees have made in the last couple of years. Almost identical, right there up in uh, the top of Turkey, then making a, uh, a sea crossing over into Europe. So why have the apostles done it? Well, it's clear that the Holy Spirit has given them a vision, a vision of a man calling them. I want to pause immediately and ask you a question. Have you ever been given a vision or a heart for a particular group of people, a particular nation, a, a town, a village, an estate, a section of society? Have you ever, through the Holy Spirit working in your heart, almost heard the cry of those people? How do we respond to that? What do we do when that happens? And another question, are there people here this morning who are almost sitting on a prophetic call to a particular place or a people and are wondering what to do with it? In this uh, narrative, Paul doesn't muck about. It says that he got ready at once. I wonder if even now God is stirring us up to get ready at once to respond to the things that we know he's called us to. 
Is there a place or a people group that you feel called to? And for many of us in this room, that's going to be here. That's going to be our towns and villages of Shropshire. It's going to be the workplaces and the communities in which we live, the places of education, the places where we go to spend our leisure time. But if God's given us a heart and a call for these people, let's remember that. Let's remember why we're here. Going back to the Europe thing, another perspective which might be familiar to some of you. The early followers had been told that uh, they would be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you think of the Roman Empire at that time, at the time those words were written, at the very edge of the Roman Empire would be the province of Britannia. Soon they would build a wall on the northernmost part of that province. And that wall signified the end of the empire, the end of the earth. So it's 3,700 miles from Jerusalem to Shrewsbury. It's 200 miles from us to the end of the empire. You can go and visit it. It's quite nice. There's still a few bits of wall there. The ends of the earth are still a long, long way from the area they are now. But Philippi is an enormous step. Pause for a moment and see the heritage that we in Britain have in this passage. The gospel is reaching Europe. The good news is coming. I wonder what peoples and nations in this world now feel like the ends of the earth. And yet the good news is coming. I wonder what empires and political powers exist in our day that feel totally like they're impenetrable to the gospel message. They feel like that now. And yet the good news is coming. What do we know about Philippi? Well, at the time of this story, uh, that uh, city had been established for about 400 years because it was on a major trade route. So it was the Greeks who'd uh, established it as a city, uh, and that was to provide military protection. Military protection because the area had gold mining. It had industry, precious metals. Military, industry, trade, people passing on their way to get to other places. And the Romans, when their empire came, they used it as a city for the retirement of their soldiers, sometimes their best soldiers. It was a good thing to retire there. So it's still quite small in size, but because of the local industry and the wealth, it was so strategically important. There were lots of monuments in this city, lots of buildings that were bigger and grander that you'd think of. It was a regional centre with its own military garrison on a major trade route. I put it to you that if you replace gold with wool, Philippi bears significant resemblance to Shrewsbury about 500 to 600 years ago. 
So Paul has assembled his church planting team. He's heard the call to go. He's had this vision. Who else are we going to recruit to reach Philippi? Who's going to be on our team? Well, there's going to be a businesswoman. There's going to be a uh, local government official. He's a prison officer, actually. And there might be uh, this lady with a really uh, profound prophetic gift. Wow, that sounds like quite a team. Tell me a little bit more about them. Who's going to help you establish this church? How long have they been believers? Well, that's, that's actually a bit of a problem at the moment because they're not yet believers. They, uh, they haven't yet come to faith. Really? That doesn't sound like much of a, a team to go and establish this thing on. Yeah, there's another problem as well. You know that prophetic girl? Well, to be honest, she's got that power because she's demonized. That's not a fantastic pick. Now, I'm being creative with the account here. So you will be relieved to know that we're going back to Scripture immediately. But I want to put it across to you that they're breaking into completely virgin territory and the people they encounter are going to be the people who run with this spiritual momentum and build this faith community ongoing. So let's have a look from verse 11 then. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message when she and the members of her house then when she and the members of her household were baptized she invited us to her home if you consider me a believer in the Lord she said come and stay at my house and she persuaded us so Lydia a dealer in purple cloth purple being a uh, a, a royal color uh, a highly valued item high end consumer goods was this lady's industry. She was selling the Armani jeans of the day. Now, there's a lot of discussion about whether Lydia was single or whether she was a widow, but one thing we do know is that no man is mentioned. She appears to be wealthy because of her business and it's talking of her household, and obviously she has her own home to invite them to. So in a world of uh, patriarchy and uh, a lack of rights for women, we see a gifted, able woman of significant resources be the first person to respond. It's interesting because she has some level of faith when they meet her. She's likely someone on the the, the fringe of Judaism, worshipping God, but not necessarily fully understanding what that means. And this makes her really open to Paul's message, and we see her instantly respond to the gospel. She's close, but she's not quite there yet. And then the good news comes. That makes me pause and wonder again. How many people are there out there? 
in our town and in the surrounding towns and villages who are close but not quite there yet when it comes to faith. I think there's more than we realize. We often bump into the ones who appear fiercely opposed, but I wonder how many there are actually quite interested. I wonder if only we had a way of connecting with people. Tell you what would be a good idea, I reckon, if someone produced something that would help them on that journey, like a prayer guide or, uh, or something like that. Maybe even something that we could use ourselves and then we could put in their hands and give them an opportunity to draw closer. I wonder if we could encourage people to try praying. I wonder if that's an invitation that we could make. Because people are often closer than we think. She and the members of her household are baptized. Just a quick word here that um, some people use this verse to consider baptizing babies because her household comes to faith and they're all baptized. Uh, If you forgive the pun here, but that explanation doesn't really hold much water because. There's no mention of infants in this story. It's possible that she had children. There's no mention of her age or their age. The household could easily refer to servants and slaves or older children. What happens in this story, what we do see, is the figurehead of a family comes to faith. And that seems to instantly cause a response to her household, to the people she's connected with, to those people who are influenced by her. And we still see that happen today. Lydia is widely regarded as the first convert on European soil. A woman of means, a woman of real importance in the church. She opens her home to the traveling apostles and they stay in Philippi. Let's move on from verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them up before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. It seems remarkable how quickly a time of blessing apparently goes completely pear-shaped. Have you ever had that feeling that things seem to be going well, and then suddenly... Suddenly, things go downhill. They're in the new city. They've had their first convert. They're preaching daily. This girl starts hassling them. They let it continue a short time until Paul casts the demon out of her. 
One thing I think is really interesting about this part of the story is that while they're preaching their good news, the response within the city seems to be a little bit static. The moment that good news affects the economics of the city is when the opposition comes. We see this later in Ephesus as well, and we'll come to that in a couple of weeks. I love the charge that is brought against them. And I would love it to almost be a prayer point, a a heart cry of the church in Shropshire that one day the same charge would be made against us. These people are throwing our city into uproar. These people are turning things upside down. These people are doing and being so completely and radically different It feels like things are in uproar. I wonder as well with the economic stuff, what would be the modern equivalence of this account? What would it mean in Shrewsbury? Brothels closing because the women working there have come to faith and the church have helped them to rebuild their life. Psychic businesses closing because the Holy Spirit is so powerful in the churches. People don't need to go and search for some second-rate spirituality. If you read accounts of the Welsh Revival, you see glimmers of this kind of things uh, where the change in the community was so great, it was noticeable. One of the uh, famous Uh, Accounts of that is where the ponies who used to work in the mines no longer understood their instructions because they were not being sworn at anymore. And they actually had to teach their ponies a new set of instructions because even their words had been cleaned up. Imagine having an impact that turns your town or city into uproar, not because of anything inappropriate you're doing, but because you're turning the strongholds and the patterns on their heads. And then they face such opposition. They're beaten up. They're put in prison. I am certain that there is nobody in this room who wants that to happen to them. And I guess the question it leaves me and it probably leaves us with is what level of opposition are we willing to face for following God? And if there was a flare-up of opposition, would we be disheartened and see that as a failure of God to protect us? Would we be discouraged? If this was our situation, if this was our church plant, if these were our leaders, how would we react? And we go back to that prison cell to see how they do react from verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. 
The jailer called for lights. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole household. So what is it that you do when things kick off in your life? Where do you go when things go wrong? A big glass of wine? A shopping trip? A football match? Some comfort food? When it feels like everything is closing in, where do you go? In the depths of a prison, in the middle of the night, alone, their mission apparently ended, covered in bruises, with the taste of dry blood in their mouths. Paul and Silas are doing what? They're praying and they're worshipping. And for me, this is so totally profound and provoking. God, you gave me a prophetic vision of a man coming to come here, calling me here. God, we've been faithful in witnessing to you here. God, we did our best and now we're in prison. How could you have let this happen? Where are you, God is somewhere where I would go, I think. And we hear people say things, like genuinely say things, like it's a struggle to pray at the moment because we just don't see God working in the circumstances or we're not coming to church at the moment because we're going through such a hard time. And I sympathize with all of those because I feel that myself. But then we picture Paul and Silas in the inner cell of a prison, beaten, hungry, alone, in chains, praying and singing hymns to God. Because no matter what the problem or the circumstances, he's still the answer. And everything that was true about God on the day of Lydia's conversion, on the day of their first convert on European soil, Everything that was true on that day is still true now. Some of the most profound and meaningful times of worship we've ever had in the life of our church have been at people's funerals. Because on that day, It's all so wonderfully true in the sadness and in the darkness. Worship and prayer has such power. And then this miraculous earthquake causes the jail to open. And yet they stay, and it doesn't really explain why they stayed there. It could be because... They were choosing to obey the law rather than take the easy way out. It could be because they hadn't finished their sense of witness to the jailer and to the other prisoners. Somehow, 
this whole thing wasn't actually about them being in the prison. It was about God's purpose for them there and then. And the jailer immediately comes to Christ, not because of the quality of their preaching necessarily, but because of their extreme faithfulness under pressure that he witnessed because he's the one who locked them up. He and his household come to faith. Imagine the scene. So we know that it's really late by now. Dad comes home from work and starts retelling the story of what has just happened. There's been this earthquake, but the prisoners have stayed. And uh, the good news of Jesus has been explained to him. The gospel coming to one family member yet again has a big impact. The bridgehead into a new household is made. He and the members of his household are baptized. Just a quick word here. Some people have used this word, this part of the passage, to consider baptizing babies, as all of his household are baptized too. Forgive the pun, but that explanation doesn't hold a lot of water, because there's no mention of infants. We don't know his age, or if he had children, or if his children were young. But in verse 32, we see Paul and Silas speak the good news to all the members of his household, who then respond. Their response is an act of faith to the message being preached and to the radical impact on the life of the jailer. They're not babies without the capacity to listen or to understand the message that they're being preached in verse 32. Moving on, verse 35. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. I love the way this passage turns on its head. And suddenly it's the the magistrates of the city are the ones who are left fearing the apostles and not the other way around. We finish in Lydia's house with the brothers and sisters present, encouraging one another. And the apostles leave Philippi. They do not leave Philippi to spiritual isolation and decline. They leave it with spirit-filled believers who connect with them in the ongoing mission. The seeds of a significant church have just been planted before our very eyes. So having read through all of that, what I'd like to do now is to draw out some key themes that we can ask ourselves some questions and take away with us. So if we could have those up. Don't give up. Later on, Paul writes a letter to this church in Philippi. And in the book, Philippians 1, verse 1, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. He's writing to a strongly established and settled church. 
the outcome years later from these tough beginnings is an effective church. In what we've just read, we see it's almost like God's purposes, like when there's breakthrough, there is also opposition. And it's almost like the first fruits of the mission into Europe, the the, the first converts, the first days of mission into that area were then radically opposed. And so when that happens to us, when things do seem like they've gone completely wrong, we mustn't lose heart. I think that provokes me, possibly you too. Are there any areas of our Christian walk or sense of calling where we've lost heart? Where we've stepped out to do something and it's not gone the way we planned it, where We've seen someone come to faith and been really excited, but then they've just feels like they've drifted off. People who've really opposed us and really sort of had a go at us for our faith. If Paul had given up here and turned back, he'd have never got to Corinth or Athens or Ephesus or Rome. We read what happens in Philippi and we think, don't give up. Don't give up. We go again. Building strong. Instead of Paul giving up and his mission into Europe losing momentum, we see that he's writing to all God's people, the overseers and the deacons. There is a mature and secure church. There's a very clear sense of a membership, the people who it is, different uh, leadership within the church, blessing them. And it makes me think that if we want the fruit of our lives to have an ongoing impact, then we need to grow whatever it is we're called to within a church that can sustain it. We need to build strong where there's people, elders, deacons. And we need to see the bigger picture Much later on in Paul's ministry, he's in prison. And it's the church in Philippi who sends someone to him to help look after him. Paul's there in prison again. He's stuck. He needs encouragement and finance too. Philippians 2.25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Paul's arrived in the city. They've witnessed. They've established a church. And many, many, many years later, this church that we just saw the little seeds fall into the ground over the last 25 minutes, it's that church who sends a messenger to go and be with Paul near the end of his life and to help him when he's in prison. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul takes up an offering for the Jerusalem church. Read this one. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of severe of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. The church in Philippi, in the area, in Macedonia, those churches would have almost certainly been involved and receiving that praise from Paul. 
Thanks, uh, Philippians 1 again from verse 3. I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We've just seen the first fruits of his early mission in Philippi. And later he writes, this is Paul, this is the apostle, writes, I thank God every time I think of you. In all my prayers for all of you, because of your partnership from the first day until now. Partnership in the gospel, joining in with, giving, financial resources, sending people. That is what the church in Philippi did because of its connection with Paul. And you know, when we talk about stuff that uh, Christ Central Churches is doing, when we talk about events in Shropshire, when ones of us are going off to different places preaching, uh, when we talk about the Devoted Festival in the summer, that's our partnership in the gospel. That's, that's the network, that's the family that we belong to who are doing things beyond the borders of our own capacity. That is our bigger picture. Do you know that yesterday there was a conference up in Huddersfield that gathered around 80, 90 people that represent church planting teams going into 20 different towns and cities, mostly across northern England, looking by the year 2020 to have established 20 new mission-based churches where there's real spiritual community, care for the poor, and ongoing declaration of the good news. We belong to a bigger picture. Lord, let one day someone say, every time I remember Barnabas, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I think we need to pray for strategic conversions. Lydia, when she came to faith, she brought with her all her business, her resources, her contacts, her home with the hospitality, the resources, and the connection with her household. When the jailer came to faith, all his household were affected. Let's pray that God will break into households and friendship groups and workplaces and places of education. This strategic church in Philippi had resources because of the people who were brought in. And that final question, why are you here? Why are you here? I mean that in a really nice, friendly way. That sounded a bit aggressive. Why? Those of us who are here who are part of this church, why has God connected you with this community of believers? In this country, we've got a strong emphasis on personal decision to follow Christ, and with good reason. Individuals need to respond to God for themselves. But sometimes we've mistaken that personal decision to follow Jesus and made it a personal decision to outwork our faith on our own. But these new disciples were very much concerned with the building of a church 
and then with the mission beyond themselves. Lydia and the jailer were not saved in order that they themselves might go to church, whatever that means. They were born again into a new community with baptism as the public sign. But at the moment that happened, they were added into a local, national, and international mission as the Holy Spirit went ahead of them and stirred people to follow Christ. So I've got three questions to leave you with this morning, and then I'm going to ask Martin to uh, just draw things to a conclusion. What gifts did God bring into his church when he called you? Which of those remain latent and unseen? What connections did God bring into his mission when he called you? And what resources did God bring into his mission when he called you? As we see the momentum and the snowballing effect of the book of Acts, we see the good news has come to Europe. We see it spread through the generations. And we're here and part of this story continuing today. He called Lydia with purpose. He called the jailer with purpose. And he called you with purpose as well. I think we have such an opportunity to continue to go on an adventure of discovering what purpose God has called us for as individuals, but more importantly, as the pieces of the jigsaw come together and we discover that as a church family. Terry. Let's pray together, shall we? Can we just spend a moment praying? Thank you so much today.